me today to speak your word and uh, just to challenge all of us, Lord, to have a heart for folks that uh, need the love of Jesus, whoever they may may be, wherever they might be, Lord, uh, just we're all missionaries for Jesus. Father, use us today and use your word today through me and uh, just speak mightily in Jesus' name, amen. And if you have your Bibles today, and I don't know exactly what Bill did with the points or whatever, I was going to look at the bulletin, but uh, if, you, if you want to turn to Luke 4.16 through 21, I just want to talk about that for a minute. And, um, and as we look at that today, I want to talk to you a little bit about a message that the Lord gave me uh, a few years ago and really didn't know what what Lord was doing. I wrote down a bunch of stuff and I had no clue what it was and started out with about six pages of notes and just really didn't know what I had and, and as it as it came about it was really a message that the Lord had put on my heart. It wasn't something I came up with, but it was something the Lord put on my heart. And you know, everybody today has mission statements. Everybody has um you know, things that they're doing, they're doing them for families and all kinds of stuff today. Everybody's got to have a mission statement. And, you know, I know Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. And, you know, he didn't come to uh, be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But he also said right here that he was fulfilling this passage. Let's look at Luke four sixteen to uh, 21. And this is really just a kind of a kicking off point this morning. I'm not going to expound this or go verse by verse by verse, but I'm going to kind of use this as a place that shows us what Jesus did with his life and uh, said why he came. And then I want to find some other verses and back up what he says here. It says in Luke 4.16, So he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." And then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so as we look at this uh, message today, I believe that this was Jesus' mission statement. And I really believe that it parallels uh, Matthew chapter 5 in some ways. And I know there was a physical application because it's actually a quote out of Isaiah 61, and the very next section of that scripture says, and to bring the day of wrath, to bring a vengeance, the day of vengeance. But Jesus didn't come the first time to do that, did he? He came and he said, the Spirit upon the Lord, the Lord is upon him, and he's anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. Not only those that are poor physically, but those that are poor in spirit. Matthew 5, those that are poor in spirit. Those that are uh, broken hearted, those that are broken over life circumstances, the things that are going on in their life, but also those that are broken hearted over their sin. To proclaim liberty to the captives, those that are physically captive, you know, uh, Israel was captive many times and sometimes we're captive of circumstances in our lives and, and uh, you know, I think about folks, I minister in the jails and the prisons, but you know, those folks in the nursing homes are captive too. They're locked up, right? They can't get out. Most of them can't. And some of us may be locked up in the circumstances we don't like today, maybe a marriage or a, you know, sickness or some situation. So we're all, in a sense, captives. But I believe also he's talking about here the captivity of sin because the Bible says whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And so he, he came to give the recovery of sight to the blind. Those that are uh, physically blind, remember he healed the blind man. Um, but you know what? 
The Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that he might not see the truth and believe on him. And so he wants to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those that are oppressed by others, those that are oppressed by life circumstances, those that are oppressed by um, their sin, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so, you know, as I think about that, that, that is Jesus' mission statement, and that ought to be our mission statement today. We can't physically give sight and all the things he did, but, you know, Jesus called us, and he came, and that's why we got to go. We've got to get out there and, and go. And so I just want to tell you a little quick story. It's kind of, you know, a few years ago I was going over to Savannah Specialty Care, and, and I walked in there, and, you know, I'm always dressed like this, and everybody knows me, so, well, Marty's just, that's just the way I dress, I, you know, and, and not dressing to impress or anything like that, but I dress like this on the weekends. During the weekdays I'm dressed like most of y'all are. But on Sundays, I usually dress like this. And I went to the nursing home and walked in there, and one of the nurses at the station looked at me, and she said, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing here? She looked at me, and she said, what are you doing here? I said, I don't understand. What are you talking about? She said, we don't have anybody dead here today. She thought I was the undertaker coming to get folks. And I thought about it a minute, and I said, yeah, but you do have people that are dead in their trespasses and their sins and we're coming to give them life. And if we don't come give them life, who's going to do it? You know, and, and as I titled this message, and I don't know if um, it's called The Life of Opposites or What Would Jesus Do? If you ever look at the Bible, the Bible always says to do the opposite of what the world says to do, right? And we ask ourselves sometimes, what would Jesus do in a particular situation? And so... Uh, you know, if we look at this world, the people of this world, including us, have places to go, people to see, and things to do. That's going to be your three points today. Places to go, people to see, and things to do. So, but where did Jesus go? What did he do? And what is really important in the scheme of things? Are the things that we are doing every day, are they really important? Are they really important? You know, life is full of choices. I mean, when we walk out of here, we can go to any one of hundreds of restaurants. We can go home. We can do whatever we want to do. But what did Jesus always do? What were the choices he made? What did he do? Where did he go? You know, and and choices, there's always choices, but we have to try to make the best of the choices that God gives us. He tells us to redeem the time. And you know, every single one of us here today, whether we're the weak or the mighty, whatever we are, God can use every single one of us because He does use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And, and I'm definitely one of those people. I mean, when God first called me, just real quick, when He first called me, I was like, you know, when I was a kid, I was scared to death to get up in front of the class and, and, and do those book reports. Anybody hate those book reports? You know, I was scared to death to get back in front, front of them. And, and, you know, as soon as I finished, I'd sigh, get a sigh of relief. And then all of a sudden, guess what? I'd get scared again because I had to, knew I had to do another one in about six weeks, right? And if people got around me and more than two or three or four people got around me, I'd be nervous. And when God called me to speak, I was sort of like Moses. I said, who, me, Lord? You talking to me? You can't be talking to me. I'm like Moses. I don't know how to speak. I get scared. You know, I was real nervous before I got up here, you know, but it's just, you know, God can use every single one of us. But when we see people the way Jesus did, then we have the eyes and the heart of Jesus. I want to read to you just a couple of statistics here, and um, I was trying to figure out whether to read this other thing. Now, remember, this isn't just a Marty thing today, Um, you know. My objective is I don't have any other illustrations because my illustrations are what I do. And, and, but guess what? If you were to look at any other ministry, they would have a lot of the same type statistics. And we just need to realize that no matter where we go, that there's plenty of opportunities to minister out there. I just wanted to read a couple of uh, things. One thing was written by one guy. He says... Uh, People have said only half-jokingly that the job of the U.S. Marines 
is to kill people and break things. As a former Marine, I can vouch for that. I'm not talking about me, but this is somebody else wrote that. But it's also true that while fighting our nation's wars, the Marines uphold a strict moral code. Now imagine a force three times the size of the Marines, 700,000 young men, many of whom are trained to kill and break things, but who lack any kind of moral code. What would happen if they were unleashed on unsuspecting communities all over America? Well, we're finding out. This year, the number of men that will be released from America's prisons will be more than 1,700 a day. That's 700,000 men this year almost. And I can tell you that most people being released from prison are not ready for life outside the prison walls. The statistics bear this out. The Department of Justice estimates that two-thirds of all men who are released from prison will be rearrested within three years after committing more crimes. And remember, that's just the ones that are caught. The odds are even worse for offenders with drug and alcohol problems. I did some calculations, and uh, from 2002, I looked on some websites. There was a 15% increase in the inmate population from 2002 to 2007. And I kind of calculated, and I know the state of Georgia pays it, but just here in the Savannah area, um, Coastal State Prison, Men's Transitional Center, and um, the prison out there, the jail out there, the cost is probably about uh, $55 million a year for all of those. And so uh, it's a lot of money. Uh just some statistics for the nursing homes. 66% of the people in nursing homes do not have a living relative. And I don't know that that's 100% true. Maybe in different places, but I just know a lot of them don't have families. Now, the black males, one in 32 out of 100 will end up in prison at some time in their life. Hispanic males, 17 out of 100 and white males, almost 6 out of 100. And so about 18,000 people will pass through the Chatham County Jail this year in one year. That's probably low because that was given a couple of years ago. In the United States, 1 in 30 are either incarcerated or on parole. Georgia is ranked third in the United States for people incarcerated and on parole It's also ranked sixth for the total number in prison. In the Savannah area, represents 5% of the total Georgia prison population. And I was reading up here that they spent like $214 billion last year. I know uh, California spent like $8 billion, and Texas was right behind them, and then supposedly last I saw, Georgia was third. But... uh, you know, a lot of these guys, they, uh, it's like this. Picture yourself. You just got out of prison. You were transported to a town where you have no place to stay, no job, no safe friends to turn to, with $25 in your pocket to provide food, shelter, and transportation until you not only find a job but work long enough to collect a paycheck. The truth is these people are being asked to do the impossible. A well-educated person with no criminal record would have a very hard time trying to accomplish this feat. He may find an employer who would trust him in advance and a landlord who'd wait for the deposit and rent. But what chance does a man straight out of prison have of finding these considerations? So, you know, there's a minimum of 40 million people affected by crime. You know that our crime rate is higher than uh, even Russia and China today? We have... 2,293,000 people who are locked up at this point. And the last statistic I had is 2.3 million children have a parent in prison or jail. In the majority of state prisoners, 60% are held in facilities more than 100 miles from their homes. It's not surprising that most fathers, 57%, report never having a personal visit with their children after admission to prison. And so, you know, those are some tough statistics, but any other ministry would have statistics along the same line. But, you know, I think about that. Um, I don't know, 
I don't know exactly how the yacht clubs got started. I was trying to figure out whether to use this or not, but there's a story of the parable of the life-saving stations. And they started out trying to save lives, and they would go out and they would get the people and they'd build a little clubhouse, you know, close to the beach. And after a while, they decided they would fix it up, and it got nicer and nicer, and they were still going out and getting people. And after a while, they fixed it up so nice, so it would be nice while they were waiting on people to be shipwrecked, that it got pretty nice. And then they started bringing people in, and the people would mess the place up, and and uh, you know, after a while, they said, well, you know, we need to hire some people to do this. And so they still would bring them there, but then after a while, they kind of like, there was a split between the members, and they said, look, if you're going to keep bringing these, these dirty people in here, these people of all these different races and these strange-looking people in here, you're going to have to go find another place. And so they'd start another one, and then the cycle kept going and going and going. And now all over the coast, there's life-saving stations. But there's a lot of yacht clubs too. And I don't know if that's exactly how the yacht clubs got started. But you know what? That's a picture of what the church has done today. We have split and we have said we don't want these dirty people coming in here. We don't want these people. But we're supposed to be a life-saving station. And so let's talk about places to go. Where did Jesus always go? If you want to turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, verse 3. And this is our first verse. And a lot of verses I'll probably just shoot off the top of my head or rattle off and probably won't be able to uh, just try to write them down or something if you get a chance. But I'm not going to turn to a lot of these. But I'll read them or talk about it. What does it say in John chapter 4, verse 3? It says, he left Judea and he parted again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. This is Jesus, right? Now, the old King James Version says, he must needs go through Samaria. What does that mean? He had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with a lady that had had five husbands, right? Was living with a guy and she'd been married about five times and then she was living with a guy. And so Jesus had an appointment with her to go tell her about her sin, to talk to her and lead her to Christ. But he needed to go to Samaria. So where do we go today? You know, I think about it, that uh, he always went to the places that we don't want to go to, right? I mean, he went to the slums. He went to the healing pool. I guess that would be what you called the hospital back in those days. He went to Samaria, the half-breeds. You know, and I, and I think about it, a lot of times, you know, we can get a crowd to go up out of town. I'm not for out-of-town missions, and don't get me wrong, but a lot of times we can always get up a crowd to go out of town and, and go somewhere and suffer for Jesus, you know, but, but a lot of times we can't even get folks to go down the street to the nursing home or to the people down our street or our next-door neighbors or somebody that's real close to us, and we can't even go down there to them but yet we can spend a bunch of money to go out of town. And, and I was talking with a pastor one day about that, and I said, what do you think that is? And he said, that's like ego ministry. And I'm not saying every time you go to Russia or go somewhere that that's ego ministry, but a lot of people just want to say, well, I went here, I went there, I went there. But, you know, my, my deal is, is if we look at the United States today and look what kind of shape that our country has gotten in, folks, we need to start concentrating on our country. Yeah, we need to go everywhere because Jesus said to go, right? But we need to concentrate on our country too because there's a lot of folks here that need Jesus and we're just not going to them. We're not talking to them and they're out there just dying and going to hell. And so, you know, my, my, my question to you is why can't we just look in our own backyard first? You know, it's scary to minister to people we know, right? Remember a minute ago I said I was real nervous? I go somewhere where I don't know a lot of folks and I can, you know, get up and I can just go at it. It doesn't bother me too much. But I know a lot of y'all folks today, so, you know, but I got to remember it's not about me, it's about him. And so that's the bottom line is it's not about me, it's about him. Even though I get nervous, I want y'all to think good of me 
But you know, we want other people to think good of us too. But what's more important, telling them about Jesus or being thought well of? That's the question. You know, I, I was thinking about a lady that was over at one of the nursing homes and she's probably been dead a couple of years now, but she would come to the services and she really wouldn't stay very long. She would come and what we do is we usually do like a, at the jails and the prisons unless we do a, a, some of them we just do like a full church service. But in most play, uh, the nursing homes we do church service. We sing for 30 minutes and then we'll have a message for 20, 25, 30 minutes. minutes. But what we did was we'd go over there and we'd sing, but every time we'd get through singing, you know what she'd do? She'd roll out of the roll out of the service and go back to her room. But but it was an assisted living facility, so like these doors are along the side here, the doors were kind of open, and I guess she could hear. And so after a while, I started noticing she would stay. But this lady, she was mean. I'm, I'm telling you, she was mean. And there was no doubt in my mind she was mean. And, I mean, it was like a couple of times I tried to say something or do something, and she just like, you know, at me. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know. And, and so I noticed after a while that there was a change. She quit being nasty. Of course, she had her times, you know, but, but she would stay in the uh, service, and she would stay the whole time, and she would sing, and she would smile. And even when she got to where she couldn't come out to service, I'd, I'd ask her, you know, if she wanted a book or something. She'd say, just leave my door open so I can hear it. And she died, I, I think it was maybe, like I said, a year or two ago. And when I looked, I saw that one of the churches that she went to, she probably never got the gospel. You know, you look in the paper and you see all these folks and some of the churches they go to and you go, they probably didn't get the gospel at that church. Whether she did or not, I know she wasn't saved, but I believe now she's in heaven. And this lady was like 96 years old when this happened. And so it's never too late, right? And so, I mean, even, you know, we go over to Habersham House and we used to go to an Alzheimer's place called Shadow Moss over there. We even have some of the folks over there, you know, you wouldn't even think they're alive hardly and they're kind of hanging over like this and but you get up close to them and they squeeze your hand and you can hear them singing. They might not remember what they ate a minute ago, but they can remember them old hymns. They can sing and they can, and and I've even had one lady crying out in the service, I got to get right with God. I got to get right with God. And sometimes we're not even there. We're ministering to the folks that are there, but sometimes family members are there. And sometimes we do that at nursing homes and family members are there and they're struggling with their mom or dad being in the, in the place and they're just struggling because they're having to deal with all the stuff that goes on. And sometimes they get saved as a result of us ministering to these other folks because they bring mom or dad to the service or they see them in there and then they come in there and join us, you know. And so there's a little uh, thing that I, I got out of a book called the Sunshine Society. It's a little ministry that um, they make old CDs, the CDs of the old songs and the old hymns, and they got letters about this big so the folks can read them, right? And uh, they wrote a little thing one time that said, there are many people standing in line to do the great and mighty things of this world while countless little things for his kingdom go undone. What you do for the least of these may seem a little thing, but it will likely go undone unless you or I do it. What an opportunity God has given us to make a difference for eternity. How true that is. Are you willing to stand in line and do the great mighty things and just be waiting like everybody else? Are you willing to be like Jesus who humbled himself and made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant? Are you willing to do anything that God asks you to do? That's the question today. You know, we need to devote more attention to ministry. I'm talking about we, not just me, but we as the church. We as, you know, individuals. Because that's what God's called us to do is to be missionaries wherever we're at. No matter how tough it is, you're the only saved person in the place. Well, God's made you a missionary there. Do people know 
that you're a Christian. The people know that you're saved. I heard some story about a guy that he wanted to talk to this guy. He kind of liked him and he'd been working there a couple of years and he said, well, look, I'm going to go to lunch with him and try to talk to him about the Lord. And he goes and guy, he sits there and he said, well, I'm a Christian. The guy said, oh, I'm a Christian too. And he said, oh, I wonder where you was at. They've been working together for a couple of years and either one of them knew the other one was a Christian. So are we closet Christians or do we let people know what we stand for? You know, that, that, that's the question. Jesus had places to go. Where are you planning on going today? What are you planning on doing? What are you planning on doing this week? Have you intentionally made plans or asked God to put somebody in your way as you go different places to speak to them about the Lord? Have you done that? That's why you're here. If he didn't want you to witness, he would have just took you and me on up to heaven after we got saved. We'd have got saved and he said, zip, you're gone. Don't need you no more. But we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the mouth of Jesus. We're the ones to tell others. Look what he had to do. Number two, he had people to see. I was thinking about what a motley crew the disciples were. You know, they were a bunch of messed up people, weren't they? Think about it. I mean, really, you go back and do a study on them and look at who they really were. You know, I mean, Peter was a great man ultimately, but you know what? He made a lot of mistakes, didn't he? But remember, when we beat up Peter, Peter was always the leader. Every time you see the disciples mentioned, the apostles mentioned, it's always Peter, James, and John. You know what that means? Peter was the leader of all of them. It's always the same order, the disciples, the apostles. But you know, look at how messed up they were. And some of them folks, they were saying, you know these folks, man, they're unlearned and they're turning the world upside down. Who are these people? Turn over to Luke 14, verse 13. Here's your verse for people to see. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the, ma- the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So many times, you know, right before that he says, he gave a supper. Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But what do we always do? We invite somebody and then they invite us back and it's like, all right, I invite them, and then they invite us back, and we always got to pay each other back, right? But how about them folks out there? You know, I'm not saying, you know, today we got to be real careful with folks, but that don't mean we can't minister to people where they're at and, and do some things for them. You know, Matthew 22, verse 3 says, And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And in verse 8 says, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So where did Jesus go? He went to the blind, the lame, the poor, the drunks, the prostitutes, the woman at the well, the adulterers, the demon-possessed, the lepers, the dying, the thief, the tax collector. He went to all the people we don't like to be around, right? I mean, Jesus said he didn't come to save the righteous, who did he come to save? Those that realized they had a need for salvation. And you know, so many times I think about it, Jesus said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I think he was talking about a literal needle, not the eye gate at, at, at Jerusalem. But he was talking about a camel going through a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And so many times we're out there going to certain people all the time. You know, there's a there's a, a thing in the church now. You go to people of your same you know, group of people, your same level of income, your same little gang. But Jesus didn't go to those folks. He did, but I mean, He went to everybody else, right? 
He didn't just go to the money folks. He didn't just go to poor, but he went to everybody. But you know, the poor folks, the, hun- the hungry folks, the homeless, the hopeless, the hurt, and those are the people that Jesus always had a place in their life, had a special place in his heart for them. Because why? Because those are usually the ones that realize that they have a need for salvation. You know, there was a story about a deacon, and don't get offended if you got money, but there was a story about a deacon and a pastor. They went up, and this guy had, you know, all these swimming pool. He had his tennis court, you know, big old humongous house, iron gate, you know, the fence all the way around it. And the deacon looks at it, looks through the fence, and he says to the pastor, he sees the guy sitting next to the swimming pool, relaxed, and he says, well, what do we have to offer him? And it's not that we don't have anything to offer him. It's just a lot of times those folks don't want it. But we're afraid to go to the people that really are looking for something. I mean, you know, I heard one guy, I guess it was David Jeremiah talking about that, that they used to take some of the people they would go visit, and the people didn't have any use for them, but maybe a year or two later, after some of the things that happened in their life, after circumstances had changed, And they had gotten to a place where they realized they didn't have all the answers. They weren't, you know, on top of the world and everything was going their way. And they would go back and it'd be a different story. But you know, we need to look at the folks that Jesus went to. And I think we can look at a model. And if we look at people that are hurting and hopeless and helpless, a lot of times those are the folks that Jesus went to And those are the folks that are going to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because they realize they have a need. I mean, you know, I don't know about you when you got saved, but I had to hit bottom and look up before I could realize that I needed to be saved. I hope and pray that you got saved at 3, 4, 6, 8, 10. But for some of us that got saved a little older in life and had to go through some of the mess and we wished we hadn't, God uses that too, but you know, we got to understand that these people out there that are out there in the jails and the prisons and the nursing homes and all those places, you know, and, and people are living the lives they live and, and people are seeking satisfaction through all kinds of stuff and they're doing it the only way they know how. You know, you can't make a, a, a man that's a, you know, a drunk, understand that there's life on the other side of that. The Bible says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. And they're filling that God-shaped vacuum the only way they know how. And so evangelism explosion, anybody know about evangelism explosion? They they did a survey, I guess, about five years ago, and they said it cost about $33,000 for one soul to get saved in a church. I had a guy that used to be on church staff as an accountant, and um, I asked him, I was telling him that, and he said he calculated up 31000 for everybody that got saved that year. Now, I'm not saying we can put a price on a soul, and I'm not saying that we should, but you know, the church in the beginning had so little, and they did so much, and today we have so much. We're doing so little. Got to break the heart of God. It breaks my heart to think of all the people dying and going to hell. And we got all this stuff and we got all these things and we got all this junk and we're living for here and now and, you know, all the things. I mean, I, and it's just, are living for the future. And what about all these other people dying and going to hell? I heard uh, Dr. Carl Brogy, he quoted Bill Bright, said it takes six pastors and a thousand laymen to lead one person to Christ. Did you hear that? A thousand laymen, that's us. The average person in the church and six pastors to lead one person to Christ. That was quoted by Bill Bright. He, he, he wrote that in his transferable concept, How to Win People to Christ. And, you know, I think about those folks out in the jails and the prisons. They messed up, right? They did the crime. They need to do the time. I understand that. But I'm out there trying to win them to Christ because that's the only way I believe 
they're going to change. You know, we call that the Department of Corrections, but I, I, I ain't seen none of them come out corrected except for the ones that came to Jesus. The only ones I've seen come out corrected are those. The rest of them usually come out worse. They used to know how to do this, and they come out even worse because while they were locked up, they learned all these other things, how to steal better, how to do this, how to do that. And they've gotten to a place where they have to protect themselves in an environment where they've always got to be watching their back. I was looking at a guy named Kenneth back at Effingham a few years ago, and and Kenneth was one of these guys, he used to come to the services, and you know, sometimes we get guys come, and they come for a variety of reasons, right? They might come just because they want to get out of the cell. They might come because they're trying to look good on their, you know, I don't know if they write it down somewhere, I don't know if they get a little light, oh, he went to church services a bunch of times, we're going to give him, you know, a little credit on his time or something, they probably don't do that, but... They don't know that, and so, you know, they might look at some of that, I guess, but he would come to the services, and the guy, he'd sit in, and we'd be praising the Lord, and he'd be looking around, everybody like, what's wrong with y'all idiots clapping and smiling and praising the Lord, you know, and he's like, but then all of a sudden, one day, I noticed Kenneth started to change. There was a difference about him, and he was totally different. You know, uh, we, we would get in there and we'd sing and, and uh, we used to have a guy that played piano at Effingham and he got moved to another facility and so we would get in there and we'd sing and a lot of times we sound like a bunch of hound dogs howling at the moon, you know, a bunch of men trying to sing and uh, we didn't have any music. We're in there trying to sing and, and uh, Kenneth's over there, you know, at the end he's like, Come on, guys. And he's trying to get us on tune and trying to help us out, trying to help us out. But this is from a guy that was just looking at it like, what is wrong with y'all idiots? You know, I'm here in this service watching y'all fools read this Bible. And, you know, and then next thing I know, he's saved. It was another guy that uh, over at Effingham. And, you know, sometimes you get in these Bible studies, you really don't know what's going on. Some of these folks, they'll stare at you. You know, sometimes folks out on the street will stare at you, but in the prisons or jails, sometimes they sit there in a Bible study or somewhere and they just sit there and stare at you. And you're like, what in the world are they thinking? Sometimes you wonder if they're going to fix the get up, come over there and get you or what. They might be, I don't know. But you know, I guess God's called me to do prison ministry, so I'm usually not scared of these guys. I think once or twice I've gotten a little chill, you know, but but... I was sitting there that day and I was watching this guy sit back on the back row and he just kept staring at me. I'm like, what in the world is this guy thinking? It's amazing how many things can go through your mind while you're preaching or do other stuff. And uh, I'm watching him and next thing I know, he's getting up and he starts rolling down the aisle straight towards me. The whole time he's staring me straight in the face, right? I mean, just looking at me. And right before he gets up to the front, you know, I'm preaching and I'm watching him, looking at him and he comes up there and he gets right in front of the little pulpit and he turns, veers off, go to the bathroom. I don't know if he's trying to fake me out or what, try to scare me or see if I was going to back up or what. I don't know what he was doing. I think he was trying to fake me out, tell you the truth. But he went to the bathroom and said, well, I lost him. I guess he won't be out to the end of the service and didn't really notice. I guess he came back somewhere and we gave the invitation and and uh, let people have an opportunity to trust Christ, and and at the end, and you know, finished up the service. Next thing I know, I, I look, and here comes this guy again, and he's just staring at me, and he's walking down the aisle, and he's walking straight towards me, and I'm sitting there going, "What's he up to now? What is he doing?" You know, right before he gets to me, he throws his arms out like this, and he wraps them around me, and he hugs me, and he says, "Thank you." Thank you. You know, that was the last thing I was expecting, but, you know, that, that he just wanted somebody to look him in the eye and tell him the truth and tell him that Jesus loved him and died for him. And, yeah, these guys, they, they just, you know, they, they don't understand that, uh, you know, that there's hope after all they've done. You know, Ray Steadman quoted, uh, he commented on Ephesians 1.15, and he says, your faith should result 
and you're becoming more loving. James stresses this fact, right? James says that our faith is revealed by concern that it wakens for the hungry, the homeless, the heartbroken, the reach out to the hurts and all those things that people have, right? That's what we need to do. And so I was thinking about this verse here in Matthew 14, 14. I don't know if you want to turn there or not, but he's but it says he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. I had a devotional that Dr. David Jeremiah wrote and a couple of years ago. Anybody remember the 3D glasses? Well, you know, uh, wouldn't it be neat to be able to see people through Jesus-colored glasses? That is, to be able to see the world as Jesus sees it. Listen to what it says. There must be a radical difference between what he sees and what we see because simply because we don't always act like he did. For instance, what he saw brought compassion in him. Sick people, demonized people, lost people, hungry and homeless people. These were not just a froth on the wake of a fast-moving society. What's froth? You remember froth is the stuff on the wave? You remember that brown, yucky stuff when you go down to Tybee and you see that brown, yucky stuff coming on the top of the wave? That's froth, right? And usually we see that nasty stuff and we're like, ooh, I'm staying out of that. Well, that's the way we are with people. We say, ooh. I'm staying away from that. That don't look like what I want to be around. But they were just not the froth on the wake of a fast-moving society. They were real people with real needs. When Jesus looked at them, He always did the same thing. He gave. He gave of His time. He gave of His power. He gave of His wisdom. And ultimately, what did He do? He gave of His life. So the closer we get to Jesus, I think the more we should see the way Jesus sees. And seeing the world like Jesus means giving to the world like Jesus. So are we giving? Are we giving like Jesus? Giving to people? You know, we think about all the folks out there. You know, if we as the church banded together and we're doing what we were supposed to do, what could we do in Savannah? Remember this, those few little apostles, they turned whole Jerusalem all all upside down, right? And eventually they got kicked out of Jerusalem because of what they were doing. But you know, Zacchaeus, he was up in the tree and Jesus said, Come out of that tree, Zacchaeus, because I'm going to eat with you today, right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Think about all the folks we run across today that we don't like, that we don't particularly care about. We put labels on people like we put labels on shirts. When we put a label on them, we decide we don't want to be around them or they're not their kind or they're too good for us or they're too smart or they're too this or they're too that. But we need to see people like Jesus does. There are many that are hurting that need somebody to reach out and touch them. We need to do like the old telephone commercial says, reach out and touch someone, but we need to touch them with the love of Jesus. That's what we need to do. Touch them with the love of Jesus. We're going to sing a song in a little while called Love Lifted Me. And I think that's the theme song of this ministry. It says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? He, he, he loved folks, right? The Bible says we love because He first loved us. And, you know, that, that's what we're to do. We're, to, we're the last hope to those who have lost hope. Jesus was talking about that that day, and He said, what have you done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. We've given a cup of cold water in His name. We've done it unto Him. He says, Pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their trouble. James 1.27 You know, most of these folks in the nursing homes are widows, right? A lot of folks out there that God wants us to reach, but we're just not doing it. And anybody can get out there and do something. And then lastly, we have things to do. If you want to turn to Luke 2.49, it says, 
I must be about my Father's business. Think about Jesus. He was always working for God, right? Unless he needed rest or was praying, he never wasted time. He healed the blind, the lame, the lepers, the paralytics. He cast out the demons. He was always doing something for his Father, right? What did he say in, in, uh, in uh, John 17, verse 3? I know of only two people that if, if you can say this about, and it was one of them was Jesus, one of them was Paul. Jesus said, I have glorified you. I have finished the things that you sent me to do, basically. Right before he died on the cross, he said it's finished. He'd done everything that God sent him to do, right? And he said it's finished. He's done it all. He said, I've glorified you, now glorify me. Paul said, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've done everything God sent me to do. Are we going to be able to say that at the end of our lives and say, God, I was seeking your will. I was seeking what you wanted me to do and I've done everything that you want me to do. You know, like I said, there's just so many people out there that, that don't hear the gospel because we're not willing to go and tell them. Like I said, you, you see some of these folks in the jails and the prisons, and I'm, I know they're everywhere. Sometimes they're right next door, and you can look them in the eye, and you can see that there's no hope in their eyes. They're lost. They're, you know, just hoping against hope that there's somebody out there that can do something for them. Somebody that can give them hope. Somebody can tell him something. A guy I used to work with, he said right after 9-11, he said, this is a world of no hope. And it is if you don't know Jesus. Jesus is our hope. He's the blessed hope. Like I said, these folks, are they're filling up that God-shaped vacuum with everything that they can get their hands on, right? I mean, look at all the addictions there are out there today we got all these addictions but you know what they are they're really people seeking Jesus right and that what Pascal said everyone has a God-shaped vacuum in them I got a picture that I don't know if all of y'all can see it you can look at it at the end or something it's a picture a lady that uh the previous church I was at she she gave her testimony. She said she was trying to fill up her life through drugs and alcohol and men and all kinds of stuff. And she said, I was always drawing pictures like this as a picture of a woman. It's got a hole where her heart says It's got four little birds in there. And, and they're looking up and it says secretly, down at the bottom says starving. And that's what these people around us are doing. This is the best picture I've ever seen of an unsane person. They, they, they are secretly starving to death. They're looking for something and, and they don't know what. You know, I mean, it's like old Mick Jagger. You know, I don't know what the songs are today, but old Mick Jagger says, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, just listen to the songs, you know. Old John Lennon, when he wrote that song, he said, please, please help me. Won't somebody please, please help me? And they said, John, what were you thinking about when you wrote that song? He said, that was the cry of my heart. I needed somebody to tell me something that would help me. He had all the women and he had all the popularity. They said the Beatles were more popular than God at one time. That was what they said. But he was still empty, still hurting, still needy. Colossians 2.10 says, you are complete in Him. You know what that means? Without Jesus, you're not complete. You're not complete. Never will be. You can take all the drugs. You can take all the alcohol. You can take all the everything else. You can eat till you pop. And you'll never be filled. That's what these folks are doing. They're eating themselves to death. A thousand pounds. They're seeking something. And they're not being filled up. But Jesus is the answer, right? I mean, I don't know, like I said, when you were saved, if you were saved at an early age. But people, the devil has these folks by the throat. He's sending them to hell if we don't get hold of some of these people around us. Remember it says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. It's the power to make a drunk quit drinking. 
a thief quit stealing, and a drug addict quit doing drugs, right? The gospel is the power of God under salvation. If it's the power, why aren't we giving it to them? Man, if we could find a, a if we could find a cure for cancer, man, we'd be telling everybody about it, right? Everybody be lining up. But guess what? There's a cure for sin. He's called Jesus. And we're not giving people the cure. We're like that lifeboat saving station. We're saying it's mine. I got mine. I'm okay. What about all them other folks around us? I want to read you an illustration. Anybody ever read Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps? It was written in 1934. So if it was written in 1934, uh, you can imagine how appropriate it would be today if he wrote this in 34. So it's a lot of years between that. But if you know anything about the book, that's where we got all the what would Jesus do stuff from. I call it paraphernalia. Because, you know, it's like crosses, people hang them around their neck, you know, and people buy all this stuff, but they really don't understand what they're doing. And I think a lot of times we don't really know what would Jesus would do, or we've really never thought about what would Jesus do. But the whole story of the book is this guy comes in, and he's trying to get people to help him, and nobody helps him, and finally stands up in front of the church, and he and he's telling them, you know, I just need some help. And he falls over, and he and he collapses, and they put him in the hospital, and he dies, and everybody goes, why didn't we do something? And they all make a covenant together to do what, say, find out what Jesus would do and pray about it. And for the next year, they're going to take every decision, every thought, everything they say or think or do, and they're going to sift it through the thought process of what would Jesus do. And so... The guy writes on page 219, he says, You remember I was one of those who took the pledge to do as Jesus would do. I thought at the time, poor fool that I was, that I had all along been doing the Christian thing. I gave liberally out of my abundance to the church and charity. I never gave anything that cost me any suffering. In other words, there's some old language here. He never gave anything that cost him anything. Remember when uh, David bought the bought the land, I think it was from Aruna or whatever, he said, I will not give to the Lord anything that did not cost me something. Well, that's what this guy's saying. I'm giving God stuff that ain't really costing me anything. And he says, I have been living in a perfect hell of contradictions ever since I took that pledge. My little girl Diana, you remember, also took the pledge with me. She's been asking me a great many questions lately about the poor people and where they live. I was obliged to answer. One of her questions last night touched my sore. Do you own any houses where these poor people live? Are they nice and warm like ours? You know how a child will ask questions like these. I went to bed tormented with what I know now to be the divine arrows of conscience. I could not sleep. I seemed to see the judgment day. I was placed before the judge. I was asked to give an account of my deeds done in the body. How many sinful souls that I visited in prison? What had I done with my stewardship? How about those tenements where people froze in the winter and stifled in the summer? Did I give any thought to them except to receive the the rentals from them? Where did my suffering come in? Would Would Jesus have done as I had done and was doing had I broken my pledge? How had I used the money and the culture and the social influence I possessed? Had I used it to bless humanity, to relieve the suffering, to bring joy to the distressed and hope to the despondent? I had received much. How much had I given? This came to me in a waking vision as distinctly as you see two men and myself now. I was unable to see the end of the vision. I had a confused picture in my mind of the suffering Jesus pointing the picture, pointing the condemning finger, and the rest was shut out by mist and darkness. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him give with his work. Excuse me. Let's try that again. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So why do we work? To give. 
to those who have need, right? We don't get to store up, but we get to give to other folks. One pastor I know said, even though it's not eternal work, the world's charity is putting the church to shame. You know, and I know the same church that I'm talking about has a sign in the parking lot that says, you are now entering the mission field. Folks, this is not the mission field. It's nice to invite people to church. It's nice to, you know, invite some folks and all that stuff, but... But, you know, that's great, but we need to be reaching them right where we're at every day of the week. Whatever place God has put us in, that's the place we're supposed to be ministering. We are all missionaries for Jesus. He came, and that's why we got to go. And now what Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 19 and to 21 says, Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the whole outline of the book of Acts. First eight chapters, Jerusalem. Eight through uh, twelve is, you know, Judea and Samaria. And the last part is the uttermost parts of the earth. Are we going and making disciples? Are we seeing people saved where we're at? Are we telling others about Jesus? C.S. Lewis said, if we could only look beyond what we see in human beings... He said we may be in a nursing home and see somebody shriveled, somebody who's emaciated, and we think to ourselves, what a pathetic human being. But he said five minutes after death, if we could just see into eternity and recognize that every person is either going to be in an uninterrupted bliss or else unspeakable horror forever, the value of a person. I want you to turn one place with me, and we're we'll, fixing to close. I'm sorry, I'm running over a minute or two. But turn over to Jonah. Can anybody find Jonah? Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. I want to read you through 11. Remember, Jonah's told to go and minister, and what does he do? He runs the other way, right? God gets a fish. He finally sends him back the other way. And then, and Jonah's kind of ticked, you know, because the people got saved. But look what he says here in Jonah chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. Then, Jonah, then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Remember, God put a plant there. It grew up real fast, and then a worm ate it, and it died. He said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? That means there's about 120,000 small children. And guess what, folks? Jonah's more worried about that plant than he is about those souls. Are we more worried about our car, our house, our plants? Our You fill in the blank than we are about what God wants us to do. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the other things will be added unto ye. So you know what our prayer today ought to be? God, break my heart with the things that break yours. God, break my heart with the things that break yours. That's what we need to do. We're broken over so many things. We're worried about so many things. But are they right things? We've got places to go, people to see, and things to do. But are they places that Jesus would go to people to see and the things to do? There's nothing wrong with having pleasure in doing some of the things we do. But we need to remember the whole reason we're here is to be a missionary for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you today and I ask that you would uh, help each and every one of us to understand and Lord I know that we know but the knowing and the doing is two different things a lot of times and I don't know why we don't minister like we ought to we just get caught up in this world we get caught up in these things and we've been sold a bill of goods by the devil that we ought to go after all this stuff in this world but yet You said if we'd seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, 
you'd add all the other things to us. You said if we'd humble ourselves, you would exalt us. You said if we take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow you, that you would give us life and life abundantly, that you would give us joy and you give us a peace. Lord, I pray that some today would write that blank check and just write at the top, God, whatever it is you want me to do today, I want to do it. And they would just sign their name because we need to be about your business. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts with the things that break yours and that we would have Jesus-colored eyes, that we would see people as you see them, that they're hopeless and helpless and hurting and that they need you. And that's what we're called to do. Father, we love you and thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.